Well, welcome to the next Breakfast with Jesus. Um, in the last talk, I talked about the Grand Inquisitor, the second of two talks, and, in, and I discussed the false dualism of the supernatural and the natural, and how miracles operate within that dualism as a kind of an alternative to faith. At the end of that talk, I mentioned that the view to which um, we would be steered by the scriptures is an integrated view, not a dualistic view. And that is the view of sacred space, where we see the whole created order as a sacred space. Um, I, in my experience, that's an ongoing project to, to see things that way. And, and I want to explore that theme now, um, returning to Ezekiel. So now we're back in Ezekiel and I'm going to go back to the beginning, um, Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1 is uh, a famous or infamous text because it's, it's um, apocalyptic, you know, it's, it's strange. It, it, it is recording um, visions that are hard to put into words and even harder to interpret. And, and that can work as a barrier to us. We can, we can um, feel alienated by that and we can feel it's strange and we can feel it's some, you know, perhaps some kind of specialist class of biblical literature that's um, not accessible to us ordinary people. Um, now, I, don't, I want to help us with that because um, I'm going to look at it not from a strictly biblical point of view initially, but from a literary point of view. Because what we're seeing here in this chapter is something that happens quite a lot in literature, and we're pretty familiar with it when, for anyone who's studied literature or, or even seen some modern films. And that is where an alternative reality is created by the author, largely through imagery. I mean, you cannot, if you want to try to create a picture of an alternative reality, and if you use prosaic, precise language, the language will defeat your purpose because you'll just be describing an alternative visionary reality using the language of the present reality. Uh, it won't work. So what tools do you have at your disposal? Well, the tools are largely to do with imagery and metaphor and analogy. And some very great poets have used this. Now, we all use imagery and all, all poets use imagery, but sometimes the imagery is um, it's secondary to the main, th the main thrust of, of the drama or the poetry, and that's fine. Um, it's, uh, it's a tool in service of a, a rational narrative. However, at other times, it, it, the imagery takes over. It becomes a, a vortex of energy that becomes so dominating that actually the imagery is the poem. And uh, this is probably, probably most famous in William Blake, for whom um, imagery became an alternative reality that he constructed. Um, T.S. Eliot did something similar, but even modern films. I mean, um, uh, last night, Anne and I watched the next, film Trust Me Darling um, and uh, prior to that the night before we watched the apocalyptic 
um, film, Don't Look Up. Now, now they're, they're both really good films. I think Don't Look Up is a better one, but they're both apocalyptic. They're both um, really trying to confront enormously deep existential threats to humanity one way or another. But they both do it through the, the entire um, construct of the movie is an extended analogy. It's, it's, it's not presented as real. It's presented as a caricature. But ironically, the caricature is so disturbing, it's more real than the real, if that could make because it's reframing the real. So we're, we're, we're used to that. And really, that's what Ezekiel's doing. He's doing. He is a poet and he's using imagery. So I'm going to do something I have never done before on, on, on my talks, and that's read out the, the chapter. And uh, now, a bit, of, a bit of advice here for you, speaking with my old English teaching hat on. When you're confronted by a poem that is um, confusing and, and has got, seems dominated by um, imagery that you can't make sense of, the way not to read it is to try to make immediate sense of it as you're reading it, just to try to decode it and bring it back to some kind of rational, and rational will mean sequential uh, narrative, you know, that's understandable within spatial <laughs> conceptual frameworks that we can handle, if you try and do that, actually, you don't let the poem do its work. You've first of all got to let it wash over you, uh, the feeling of the rhythm of it, the perhaps sub subconscious connotations it awakens in you. Let that happen to you. Let it let digest it um, at a, at a, a pre-articulate level. And then afterwards, work on trying to make sense of it. So here goes the reading. It begins uh, actually, and this is quite significant, it begins very precisely. It begins in the world of space and time, absolutely. Um, in, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kibar Canal. So very precisely dated. Kibar Canal's in Babylon, that's very significant. We'll come to that later. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So here he goes on his visions of God. As I looked, uh, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually. And in the middle of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal, and from, from the core of it, from the center of it, came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was, was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled. Uh, like like burnished bronze. Under, under their wings, on the four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings like this. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. 
As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four also had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. And their wings, they, they were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went with, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like, uh, like burning coals of fire. Or like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire, fire was bright. And out of the fire went lightning. And the living creatures, they darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth, on the earth and beside the living creatures. One for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, well, their appearance was like, like the, gleaming, the gleaming of beryl. And the four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being, as it were, a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went, in any of their four directions without turning as they went. And their rims were tall and awesome. And the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went. And the wheels rose along with them because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those rose from the earth, the wheels rose along with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Over the heads of the living creatures, above them, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal, spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another, and each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse, over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance, it was, like, it was like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of the throne was, was a, a, 
likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, uh, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire, and closed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him. It, it was like, like the appearance of the rainbow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Well, so we begin. Um, I hope you enjoyed just absorbing that as much as I felt engaged reading it out. Um, the theme I want to talk about in chapter one is the ubiquitous God, the God who is present in a foreign land. Um, let's just briefly remember the context because that's quite important. As you heard, the, it opens with a precise time and space location and that continues, by the way, throughout the book. It's very precisely dated. Um, and in that way, it's, it's, a, it's a more sequential book, very ironically, than Jeremiah. Um, so uh, when was it written? It was very importantly, and, and to understand the book, particularly its judgment passages in the first half, well, to understand the whole book, you need to understand it is written prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem which happened in 586 BC, but only just prior. Um, Ezekiel, if you remember, was among the exiles who were taken out of Israel by Babylon with King Jehoiakim um, into Babylon. So what happened in um, uh, the first exile, which was... I don't know, 598, perhaps 10, 12 years before the final exile, uh, was uh, Nebuchadnezzar um, captured and took the ruling class of uh, Israel and Jerusalem and took them into Babylon and, and put his, tried to put his puppet king back in Babylon, which backfired on him. But anyway, Ezekiel was part of that ruling class who left probably as a teenager. And they, they now had been in Babylon a, under 10 years, but they were in an interregnum between, you can, it's really important to, 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 to grasp this. There were two very strong possibilities. One was this was temporary and they would return. And in fact, these exiles always regarded Jehoiakim, the exile king, as the real king. There's plenty of Times in history where this happened, somebody's exiled, uh, a king back home replaces them, and now we've got two kings. And this was actually the situation. So you could have thought this is temporary, or you could have thought this is permanent, and actually destruction's coming. And he was in that latter category. Now, when he wrote this, when Ezekiel wrote this opening chapter, he would have been about 30 years old. Now, this is very important because we've, we've got... He's in a unique position in the Old Testament scriptures. He's the first exilic prophet. Just let that, just absorb that point. He's the first exilic prophet 
He is situated outside the Holy Land, outside Jerusalem, outside the temple. He's situated in Babylon. Um, now, Jeremiah was situated, who was somewhat his contemporary, but older, back in Jerusalem. So when you read the book of Jeremiah, that's important to remember that. So they're both looking at the same thing, the potential destruction of Jerusalem. They're both going to prophesy the same thing. They're both going to look at the same thing, but they're looking at it from different angles. In a sense, Jerusalem's the old, sorry, Jer Jeremiah's the old perspective. He's back in Jerusalem looking at it. Um, Ezekiel's in the new perspective. He's in Babylon looking at it. And uh, Ezekiel's direct audience would be the exiles who probably were still pinning their hopes on a return. In other words, they, 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 they were some kind of denial that this exile was as drastic and devastating as it appeared to be. Um, now, um, what this means from a religious and a spiritual point of view is that he's not in Jerusalem, he's not in the temple, he is in a foreign land. Um, and, and furthermore, furthermore, in, as his visions unfolded, he was going to get this devastating revelation that the accoutrements of their religion were about to be destroyed. It looked like he, his picture was the annihilation of the whole mosaic system. Um, and furthermore, that God was behind this annihilation. So the, the, the kind of dissonance he would have had to deal with to make sense of this is extraordinary. He was in a kind of a kingly a wasteland um, where everything he believed in, all the structures he'd grown up with were about to collapse and he had to make some sense of it. So when he saw visions of God, um, it was in this context, in this pagan land, he saw visions of God by the Kibar Canal. And the visions he saw of God were absolutely epic. So this is extra quite extraordinary, and I think we need to let the significance of this new epoch in religious experience sink in. Here he was, and possibly he was a priest, without a temple, without any functioning emblems or rituals. No social or religious system was around him. But in this empty state, he was the first prophet, excluding what happened in Genesis, the first prophet to see God ruling in a foreign land. This is exactly what he saw. That's the significance of I was in Babylon by the river Kiva, and there I saw visions of God. And not just any mild visions of God, but an all-encompassing one that certainly was the foundation of all subsequent apocalyptic literature, and particularly the book of Revelation. So what are we to make of this extraordinary, dramatic situation? What message does it tell us? What does it tell us about the God he found? What it tells us is this God is the ubiquitous God. He's not a religious God. He's not confined to a temple. He's not confined to a ritual. He's the God of the whole earth. And thus, we all, to, to 
absorb this God and follow this God need to do the same as Ezekiel and see God in the pagan lands and in the deserts. Um, so, from the very beginning of Ezekiel, we have a innovative novel situation in the uh, religious experience of Israel and their prophets, which is God revealing himself literally outside the boundaries of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic system. But I think it is more than literal. It's also spiritual. He's actually in that situation seeing a vision that will go beyond the Mosaic covenant. It's bigger than any previous conceptions of God that the Israelites and the Jews had, had ever had. So what he's doing is, going back to where I began, is he's seeing the whole earth as a sacred space. That's the revelation of chapter 1. Um, There is a debate over the whole book of Ezekiel, by the way, as to whether it's a pessimistic book or an optimistic book, whether the God we see in Ezekiel is scary, judgmental, um, going to nuke everything, or whether he's a God of love and grace and compassion. So, so I, I think this chapter says a lot about that, but I don't want to go into that now. I might do a separate little talk on that. Um, what I want to do just for the remainder of the talk is I want to take you into the through the, through the chapter and give you some or share with you some of the helpful um, insights uh, I think that viewing them through the literary lens of imagery can can bring to bear. I've already mentioned that imagery can work in a minor scale or a major scale in a work of art. And I've said here, it's a major scale where in fact the whole structure, the time-space structure seems to be um, warped by the imagery. And uh, we've got what, a, what I call a semantic takeover of imagery. I mean, if you want a modern example, for those of you who have uh, read Eliot, T.S. Eliot, I'd say Rhapsody on a Windy Night is very similar where the... Uh, the energy of the imagery seems to challenge the, the, the tidy structures of reality that we have. Um, so that's what we've got here. And um, as I've already said, the trick with this imagery is not to over-systematize it, but to absorb it. And that's why I read it out beforehand, because what this imagery is trying to do is... Uh, defy boundaries, defy space-time boundaries, and pointing to a, a sort of a quantum world, I would say, of not just an alternative reality, but a governing alternative reality. That's going to be very important. And even those films I mentioned, that's what they're doing. You know, whilst if you take the film Don't Look Up, the whole film can be seen as a analogy. Analogies can be seen as a sort of cul-de-sac of life while the mainstream of life goes on but the film in fact is saying this cul-de-sac this entertaining cul-de-sac is in fact reality um, so that's really what Ezekiel's doing here you're like you're drawing back the curtains and seeing the forms that govern the earth uh, 
the images he uses, I would say, are pretty novel and innovative. Um, it's hard to find antecedents for them anywhere else. I mean, we, we can find they, they, they had consequence, consequences. Other people downstream copied them, but, it, but Ezekiel seems to have innovated them. And as I have said, one thing that is very noticeable about this chapter is that he explicitly acknowledges all through it the nature of the imagery. Um, around about 40 times, I've tried to count them, but I'm only counting English because I don't read Hebrew, but around about 40 times, he uses language that explicitly acknowledges simile and metaphor, words like like the appearance of. You're just, it's, 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 it's a, um, a drumbeat throughout it that is very noticeable. So he is aware that this language is collapsing short of the reality he saw. It's a bit like when Paul said, I was caught up and, he didn't say I was caught up, he said, I know a man who was caught up and, and to the third heaven and saw visions of God, you know, that it's not lawful to talk about. In a way, Ezekiel is in this same space. Um, so that having been said generally about the imagery, there, um, there is a coherent theme about the imagery, I think, throughout it. Um, and the coherent theme seems to me to be who rules the earth. Extremely relevant for Ezekiel, who rules the earth. And... Um, the answer is God rules the earth, but the very strong implication underneath it, it's God in humanity who rules the earth. The presence of God and a God-man on the earth and all the economies of the earth. Um, so let, let me just uh, finish by, by taking you through four um, phases of the imagery, uh, which we see it developing dramatically. So the, the first phase is the four living creatures, four living creatures, and, and they personify the rule of God. But they personify that rule in terms that hint that this, the, about the nature of that rule, which it is anthropomorphic. It is shaped by human beings. That's what it says. That's the, the recurrence. Because these living creatures, these angelic beings, all have the likeness of being a human being. You know, verse 5 was like that, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. Verse 8, uh, under their wings they had human hands. Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, they had a human face. So the human face of a heavenly realm is... Um, explicit and quite astonishing. So what this is suggesting to us to try to make any sense of it is, astonishingly, there's something human in the divine realm and in the angelic realm. Uh, it seems somehow to merge the identity of the divine and the human, and, and it seems to position humanity as sharing in something of the divine. That's the living creature's bundle with, with which it begins. Um, as, a, as a subset, you'll notice light and energy is dominating. Um, also, the qualities of these 
living creatures. Um, uh, and, and this suggests um, purity um, morally, but I think it suggests something beyond that. I think it suggests the sustaining energy, um, gravitational force fields that hold the Earth up, the, the, the dynamism that holds uh, uh, the creation up is um, actually not an abstract quality, but is coming out of the power of the, of the, of the heavenly realms. Um, the second then major feature of the imagery, um, well, we, we see these living creatures moving. That's the other point. They're not inert, they're not static, they're not sitting, they're moving. And this is really interesting because it's suggesting the engagement of the heavenly realm in, in history, in the movements, plans, situations of the earth. That's what it's seeming to suggest. Um, and when they move, when they move, because they seem to be in constant motion, um, it, the suggestion is, is to the ubiquitous theme, there's no corner of the earth that's outside of their circuit. There's no space that's not their arena. They are everywhere, which again um, would animate his vision of being in, in, in apparently in exile, apparently outside the you know the boundaries of God's confined interests back in Jerusalem. Guess what? No, no, the living creatures are everywhere, and they are unimpeded and fast in their in their movement. Um, all of which is suggesting the ultimate sovereignty and relentlessness of God's purposes on the earth. That's what it suggests to me as I read it anyway. Second bundle of imagery are the wheels. Um, and the wheels are interesting because the wheels connect the living creatures to the earth. They're, they're as it were, how the plane lands. Um, the rule of God in the heavens works out on the earth. That, that's the point about the wheels. This isn't just a transcendent rule. It's not an absent rule. It's not a rule that's, um, um, you know, platonically far from the earth. It's, it's as if the earth and its patterns and pathways is of enormous um, interest to God and the living creatures. Uh, so this very strongly suggests God's hand, God's intervention and guidance over the affairs of the earth. Now, this was certainly extremely relevant to Ezekiel because if you go back to this terribly dissonant situation he's in where everything, in a sense, all the structures he's ever believed in are about to collapse, which leaves the question of, does this mean that God is now you know, departing forever from the earth? Does it mean the collapse of God on the earth? So the wheels on the earth tell him, no, there's wheels everywhere, Ezekiel. Forget the temple, wheels on the earth. Um, and they're, they're lubricated by wheels within wheels. They seem to have some kind of inner axle, ball bearings or something that give the wheels tremendous mechanical advantage. There's no friction that, that, that slows them down. There's, there's no brakes. Uh, they, 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 they don't get stuck in uh, mud like we do. Um, these are unimpeded, um, well-oiled wheels. Um, 
So the fourth area then, the fourth area then going into well oiled is the spirit. The spirit is introduced. As far as I know, this is one of the great developments in the theology of the Old Testament um, in Ezekiel, which is the very explicit introduction of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. It begins here. You, we'd all know the famous chapter 37. Return to that perhaps in another chat. But the point is, unlike any other um, prophet so far, he explicitly now is talking about the spirit and the spirit is introduced as the driving force of the wheels. The spirit is the driving force of the wheels. The spirit is the presence of God on the earth. The spirit, he just says again several times, the spirit of God was in the wheels and that's what drove them. And this is to me wonderful and so consoling because the spirit is what, if we're the wheels of God on the earth, we have already the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the um, pervasive, direct presence of God on the earth. If we said, you know, God has an indirect rule in the sense of he's in the heavens, seems to be mediated by the appearance of a human being, but the very direct, when the wheels touch the ground, it's the Spirit. And that, that accords with our experience of God. Um, uh, the church's experience of God is that the spirit indwells and guides and directs. So the pervasive means of influence on the earth is the spirit of God. And the spirit of God, I can remember a wonderful Indian Christian woman, doctor, telling me many, many years ago that you know, she's saying, I have so many thoughts about Christ and thoughts about the Father, but every thought I have, the direct experience of that thought is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is, is the driving animation of that thought that's making me, that's illuminating to me um, the Father, the Son, the structure of reality. And now this pervasive presence of the Spirit of God is going to become a, a very pervasive theme throughout the whole book. Um, now, it and by the way, very interestingly, although I said, to, you remember I talked about how ubiquitous the imagery was? Guess what? When he talks about the wheels and the spirit, there is no imagery. You just look at it yourself. Uh, uh, when he begins to talk about the wheels and how they move in verse 17, uh, that section for the next four or five verses, there's no imagery. There's no likeness of uh, which I found intriguing. It's as if the Holy Spirit is our direct, unfiltered experience of God. We, we might need imagery to imagine the rule of God in the heavens and the end of all things. And there's a lot of things that go beyond our inner experience yet, but the, but the Spirit does not. The Spirit is shared already and the Spirit is the direct experience of God. Therefore, there are no metaphors to, as it were, mediate <laughs> that, that reality. It's, it, it is a reality we are experiencing directly. So he finishes, the climax is the throne and the expanse. And this is where this rule is, culminates in a human being governing all things. Above all, above all this, there is the expanse of the rule of God. Of course, very reminiscent of, or I mean, Revelation chapter four picks this up very much too. 
The throne is above all the living creatures. And what's astonishing, and this is very reminiscent of Daniel's vision in chapter 7 and verse 13, is you, you, you get higher and higher and higher and you get more into the glory and the, um, the stunning, intimidating presence of light and everything. And guess what? At the end of it all, what do you see? A human being sitting on the throne. That's what he sees here. Um, and that human being, he said, above, that, that's verse 26, above the expanse there was the likeness of a throne in appearance and seated above the likeness was a likeness with a human appearance. Now, um, and then he finishes, he finishes it all when he's trying to describe the brightness. And this, this verse, I think, is really significant and, and does bear on a topic which I did um, brush by in this talk, which is, is this book about a kind of judgmental, frightening God, or is this book about a God of love and grace? What's the, what's the primary position of the book? And it finishes with an image of grace, which is an evocation of the rainbow. This is one case where he does seem to pick up an image from Genesis of and Noah of the rainbow, where as, as, he, as he struggles to find what this appearance of the brightness that was all around the throne, this is the defining brightness, this is the defining glory. And astonishingly, everywhere else he's gone for images of light and energy and fire, in the final verse of the chapter, he says it was like the appearance of the rainbow, the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. He finishes um, with this uh, unique and new vision that recall, recalls the picture of grace. And as we know, the rainbow was the image that the rainbow would encircle um, and rise above and frame all judgment. Uh, the judgment of the flood had come, but the rainbow was the governing principle behind the judgment. So um, that's, uh, that's Ezekiel chapter 1. And I think absorbing that chapter is really important because it, it then casts its or shines its light and creates a direction for, for the rest of the book, which we'll chat about in some, some later talks.